what became clear very quickly was their love and interest in our culture and what made us great suddenly became less of a focus, slightly less important. Yeah. Technology has meant that we are contactable 24-7, which yeah. is part of the problem. This world of nine to five and everyone has to pitch up at the same time every day and be in a great place and be able to work perfectly from 9am, go. It's just long gone, isn't it? Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events and our awesome new sponsor, Smartcast. More about them later. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, then do me a favor and show me the love and leave a five-star rating. If it's on any other podcasting platform, then the likes, the follows, the engagement in any way you see fit is really appreciated. Globally, we're witnessing one of the biggest transformations in workplace culture since the Industrial Revolution. And this shift, fast-tracked by the pandemic, has made workplace culture a hot topic for just about everyone. In fact, Forbes magazine ranks culture among its top three most important future of work 2021 trends. Here to share more about the important topics of building a superpower work culture, brand purpose and culture transformation is the award-winning queen of culture herself, Lucy D'Arbo. Lucy is a workplace culture expert and the CEO of Together, a dedicated workplace culture consultancy here in Dubai that focuses on people, purpose and culture. Since 1998, Lucy has been providing professional consulting services to clients and businesses across the Middle East, Africa and Europe, and is now on a mission to make great culture the norm within workplaces in the region. She knows what it means to build, manage and perform in the business world with culture at the core. Her first business, Darbo & Co, which she co-founded with her sister Camilla, was the leading independent communications agency in the Middle East before it was acquired by Edelman, the world's largest PR agency. Get ready to learn all there is to know about why building a great workplace culture should be the top priority for all business owners. Cue the music. First of all, Lucy, thanks for coming to join us today. It's really important that we talk about this subject, but I'm a novice, you know, and I'm probably a little bit old school. Um, and because I'm a bit old school, some of the things that I've heard and how things are changing in the workplace environment and whatnot, some of it doesn't necessarily sit right with me. And some of it, I think, is a little bit uh, almost extreme. And that's maybe because I, you know, I, I started working in the late 80s in the city and stuff like that. So there was a very different environment. So maybe, maybe where we can start is, first of all, please explain how you know about workplace culture and why you've got into it. But also this kind of this buzz term that's going on at the moment, okay, this big thing, you know, the, the great resignation. And maybe we can understand that in a bit more detail. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, so I would say I'm a culture evangelist. So I'm obsessed, um, mainly because I love it and because I've been privileged to have the opportunity to work in a business where culture was at the core and that was a business I set up kind of over 20 years ago with my sister and got to enjoy and recognize the incredible benefit that comes from it. Why today? There is a real problem. I mean, it's not a kind of imagination. 40% of the workforce, so it's like 40% is a huge amount. Massive, yeah. Of the global workforce, so it's not even like compartmentalizing into country by country, are looking to leave their job. And of that, 40, I think it's like 49% are not just looking to leave, they want to do something completely different. 
So like full career transition, full pivot, something quite extreme. So there is a lot of talk because it's a real current issue. And there's so many reasons why. You know. So it's not, it's not like, I hate my boss, I love this industry. It's, it's, I don't even like what I do anymore. Well, look, there's no denying COVID has like fast-tracked all of this. Um, it's just shined a spotlight on that isolation people have felt through this period. The burnout has never been higher because this whole hybrid working or working from home, people have really struggled to divide you know, we, we're already struggling, weren't we, with smartphones and everyone being like, I'm available 24-7. And then suddenly the world flipped. And then you were working at home. And when did you decide when to switch off? Because mm. your dining room became your desk. And so you're just working all the time. And then in addition to that, we kind of, it gives you time for reflection. You know, it's been an incredibly stressful time for everyone. And that gives us a moment to pause. And that's really where a lot of people have come back to, is kind of going... Is this it? Like, is this all I have if, with this life that, you know, the, the years that I have left? The, the tech companies were the kind of like the early ones to come mm. out saying, you never need to go back to work again if you don't want to, or extending the periods of time of not having to work from the office, yeah. demonstrating to a lot of people that I don't actually need to be sat at my desk. Um, but I know what it feels like to be in a working environment with people I spend a lot of time with. Mm. It becomes not only business, but it's social as well. You know, you, you get to the office in the morning, you grab your coffee, you talk about the football from the night before or everyone's antics over the course yeah. of the weekend. Um, and you build those kind of interpersonal relationships with some of the people that you work with. When you don't have that, I believe that you realize that you miss that. And there's some kind of like benefit from having that community around you. But. So for me, it would be like, well, why doesn't everyone just want to go back to work? You know, that burnout thing must be really negative working from home. We'll get back to the office. We'll all be kind of like buzzing again, have the energy. We'll go to the pub on a Friday night after work. You know, we can go for lunch on <laughs> Thursday and stuff like that. And, and it'd be kind of like normal. You know, we don't then think and spend our time concentrating on the, you know, the commute on the train or in the car backwards and forwards to the office because that almost becomes immaterial. For, for a kind of like a discussion around the, the positives about the working environment. So with that in mind, is it not just people missing out on people that we, has led them to think like this? Yeah, I'm, ultimately, that's at the core of it, people. Every single person is totally unique. Like workplace culture, the, you know, the simplest way to explain it is it's the personality of a business. And like humans, very rare to find people with the exact same personality. So for each person, how working from home has affected them has been completely different because maybe you're a much more outgoing kind of sociable personality. So for you, being around people is how you fuel your energy mm -hmm. and being one on one and wanting to converse in person. And you would have been that classic like water cooler guy. Yeah. So it's like, I'm going to get all my insight, I'm going to walk around the halls, I'm going to, you know, go to the canteen, get a cup of tea, catch up, chat. But then there are, this, you know, swathes of other people who are the absolute opposite, who find their peak performance comes from, you know, peace and isolation and being kind of quietly alone. Then you have to think about different pers people's personal circumstances, you know, particularly working parents. And I don't want to seclude men and women ultimately you've got young family saving an hour or two a day on a commute i mean i know your kids are grown up now mm -hmm. but can you imagine back in the day when they were like toddlers and you could have had 
two hours back of your day that wasn't I think, I, think I, w- I, w- I was sold on something as a youngster by my dad, okay? okay? And the, the, my, my dad said the worst thing that was ever invented for my dad was a car phone. Because going to work every day in the car was his hour of peace. Yeah. You know, he'd have his hour of peace. He could, and I remember he'd have his War of the Worlds tape playing <laughs> <laughs> and he'd listen to it. He'd have Radio 4 and that was just nobody could talk to him. Nobody could be involved and he'd have this peace. And he'd get to work and do his thing. And so for me, you're kind of understanding that. It's like having young kids is going, getting in the car and going to work. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's like, an escape. That's my escape. Peace. Okay, I've got no kids to worry about for a little while. Thank so you. I suppose that it's, it's, I suppose it's how you position it yourself, isn't it? You know, my dad's got me to think one way, other people are, th- are thinking other ways. Well, I suppose, how often do you actually use that time in the car, not on your phone, on a call, listening to a podcast? Like, because now the way technology's changed, what your dad enjoyed in that hour in the car doesn't really exist anymore. You know, the, the ability to truly switch off and be able to have that car journey without, you know, put music on and not hear the ping, ping, ping mm-hmm. of the emails or the WhatsApp or the notifications. So it has, you know, yeah. technology has meant that we are contactable 24-7, which yeah. is part of the problem. You know, this has all been like a building up to a boiling point and the pandemic just fast-tracked it. You know, we've been, burnout's been happening across multiple industries. People have never worked longer, never worked harder, you know, for generations. And actually the good thing, I mean, and I would say that because I'm evangelical about it and also I really believe that we shouldn't be a generation going, our kids should all have the life we had and be beasted at work. And if they haven't worked 17 hours a day, they don't know what hard work is. (laughs) You know, I hear that so often. Why? Why would you want to suffer? You know, did we really enjoy it? Did it drive performance? Yes. You know, are there other ways that you can teach and build, you know, future leaders without them having to have done 22-hour days to be considered the hero in the office? And that's really what it's come to. It's about flipping it to be much more personalized about the individual. And now we're seeing that actually employees have a bit of a say in what's happening for the first time. You know, this is like a massive potential revolution where employers mm. are having to listen. We saw we saw some companies saying you can take as much holiday as you want. That was something I saw a few years ago. Then we saw the four-day work week as well being introduced as, as we've seen it here recently. But then you see um, it was about, I think it was about a year ago where some young graduates working at Goldman Sachs were complaining uh, about the really tough, you know, regime they were in. And, you know, we, we can't tolerate this anymore. We, you know, we shouldn't be working 18 hour days, six days a week and, you know, coming on a Sunday morning to work. But then the boss of Goldman Sachs is like, I'm paying you $200,000 a year. You know, if you want the cash, then you've got, you've got to do a fair transaction of what the cash is. And I, and I, I believe that if someone, if someone is paid by any company, £100,000 a year, for example, then the employer must get £100,000 worth of something back. Yeah, because that's a fair exchange. 100%. And so when I see these people complaining, you know, that that are paid a lot of money, it's like, these are long hours. Well, I understand it, the school teacher that might have to work long hours and not be paid well. But the guy that's earning a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and he's been out of university for a year. Yeah. And he's being told you need to be here at 10 o'clock at night, three nights a week, because we've got deals to do. How do you differentiate yourself and and do you believe that both are right? I mean, I have a really vivid memory about, you know, exactly that example. I was like 23 in Dubai, sort of third job, 
um, and I was working for kind of an event company, marketing company, and we had this new project to do. And it was like powerboat racing. The Formula One powerboat racing is happening in Dubai. We want to build a music festival and put on this big show. And we want to get sponsors involved and do all this stuff, which was totally up my street. My background was in advertising. You know, I'd been doing that for a couple of years. And I was like, yes, you know, I've always been innately hard worker, ambitious. Let me at it. But it was just me. So one person being paid a pittance mm -hmm. um, to do this job. I and mean, it was the largest music festival the UAE ever had. Oh. I must have worked six, seven days a week for months. I was in charge of the organizing, the promoting, the marketing, getting the sponsors, selling them, getting ticket sales organized. I mean, it was epic undertaking and just survived. I mean, honestly, survived, got through the long weekend. You know, it was two or three hours sleep at best for weeks. And I was so proud, like it was a huge success and the media coverage was brilliant, sponsors were happy, super proud. And my boss said to me afterwards, it was literally like the next day, I've had a day off, had some sleep, still working to be fair, but we didn't have mobiles like we do now. <laughs> so it was probably a bit easier. And he called me and he said, oh, I'd love to, you know, let's meet and um, I'll buy you breakfast. And I thought, brilliant, you know, I'm proud and I'm exhausted, but this is going to be the moment where it really feels Worth Great it. Yeah. and worth it. You know, he's going to recognize the work, might even get like some kind of gift or like something. Bonus. Bonus would be <laughs> nice, promotion better. And so off I went, you know, all kind of excited and like ready to see him and sat down in this cafe and he was like, hey, how are you doing? I was like, Great. He said, So it all went really well, but now we've got to do the wrap up, right? And think about next year. And I was like, Okay, so straight into business. And I was like, it's okay, it'll come at the end. It's fine. Yeah. So we did all of this and it was right straight back to work and nothing happened. And I was like, am I missing something? Like, I Herculean effort. Like, I'd done four people's jobs at least. So we didn't recognize it, nothing. acknowledge it. And just as I was about to leave, he went, oh, I've got something for you. And I was like, thank goodness. And he reached under the table and pulled out this like velvet box. I was like, what's that? And then I recognized it. And he opened the box and he said, I thought you'd like this as a kind of memory. And it was the like crystal trophy that I had designed and had made and arranged to have done for all the Formula One drivers. And that was it. And I was like, thank you. I mean, and honestly, from that day forth, I was my head was out the door. I was like, I didn't even need the money. I didn't need a gift, actually. I just needed a moment for him to recognize mm, what you've done, and yeah. acknowledge. And that's so important. It's like, you can do all the work. You know, did those guys that are complaining, had they done 20 hours and their boss has just literally never even well, that's, gone? That's because the boss is a lousy manager. Exactly, and that's the problem actually. It's okay, not but, necessarily but these guys. I, I get asked to go into companies to do sales training. And I find this fascinating. And they say, look, I've got this sales team, I've 100 people, we've got to turn it around, you know, they're not performing. And I'm like, great, excellent stuff, no problem at all. And I'm like, so what's the problems? They explain the details. I'm like, okay, so tell me about the management team. Oh, the management team are fine. It's just the salespeople that aren't delivering. And I'm like, really? Mm -hmm. I'm like, so you want me to come in and do their job for them? Yeah, yeah. Is that what you want me to do? Oh, no, we want to train them. I'm like, so you want me to do their job for them? I said, the reason they're not performing is because of the management team. And if the management team aren't, team aren't performing, unfortunately, that's because of you. And you're training the wrong people. Train them. So... Actually, you're the business owner. And if you can't get your management team fired up, you're doing the wrong thing. 
100%. So you're the person that needs training, not your salespeople. And they're like, no, 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 you know, you know I, I'm successful or whatever it might be. Is this, I'm like, until I fix you, nothing gets fixed. And Can so is that a workplace culture issue or is that a company's understanding? Because you know, promotions happen in businesses a lot when someone does a good job. Mm. You know, you do a really good job and I'm going to give you a promotion. Into a new job, which isn't the same job. Different skills. Absolutely. And then they're not taught those skills. It's almost like a, uh, they've got to absorb the, the, the new role uh, with the skills that they've got. And no one's saying, right, we need to take you off site for a week to teach you what you need to, or a month, or, you know what, we need to pay for a remote MBA because those, those skills will be important. Now, I'm sure some companies identify that kind of stuff, but a lot of companies don't, particularly here I've seen. No, it does come back to culture because it's how the business operates. Your culture is like the climate within which everyone is operating. So if you're in a culture of recognition, if you're in a culture of capability building, you know, everywhere is so different. But you know who does it so well, and I find them fascinating, is the courier industry. Like DHL Mm -hmm. is the pin-up. But to be honest, the whole industry, DHL is extraordinary. Not only are they every year in Great Places to Work Index, which is kind of a global index, where they interview all the staff, and that's how the index is, is managed. So it's really important. The information is coming from in the business. But at their great places to work in every country. It's not like the US is number one, mm-hmm. but you know, if you go to Mumbai, it's 54. They are in the top 10 anywhere you go. And what's really interesting, their leadership team, I would say more than 50% of the time, have come from within the business. Mm-hmm. And that's really unusual because what we see a lot of because we've become this kind of media crazy world, is people ship in the superstar CEO, Mm -hmm. you know, pop them into a business and say they'll save the day. And actually you look at someone like DHL who's so consistently performed, I mean, consistently performed through COVID, they were up, you know, their delivery was like 98% with all that disruption. I mean, that's an extraordinary feat. And because they find their people and they build them. And that's what they're doing is capability building. They're not just going, oh my God, he drove that courier van brilliantly. Now he deserves to be like superintendent of the group. And then, no, they've gone, you know, they've shown commitment. Then there's a training scheme of how do you transfer those skills, build the capability so they can then become a manager and then a senior manager and so on and so forth. So huge amounts of those leadership team are so, like 30 years in the business. So there's, there's an investment there, but the, the return is a deep set loyalty from the employees. That, want, that feel that, that that company belongs to them almost. And, and yeah, and they're so invested. I mean, yeah. you talk to people who work there, and I mean, that's why it's such a great culture, because they talk about their values. They're evangelical about their business. And, it, you know, to them, the career world and logistics is everything. You know, literally, they are so embedded and so engaged and so committed and passionate about every micro detail to get things from A to B. It's extraordinary. Okay, you've now, you've now, I have to ask the next question because you've just, you've just given me the pin up, yeah? Okay, <laughs> so you don't have to mention any names. The worst companies out there, what are they doing wrong? What are the, the mistakes they're making that, that they can't see that they, they need to focus on and, and why don't they focus on them? God, there are so many. The biggest one, and it's so simple, they don't ask. You know, it's a crazy idea but maybe ask people what's happening. Because you know, so often, you're, if a business has been succeeding and trucking along and delivering on their numbers, you know, they might not be extraordinary, but solid, decent business. And that suddenly starts to change and decline. 
you know, people go into panic mode and everyone starts sitting in boardrooms and staring at spreadsheets and going, staring at the numbers. And, and actually, if you just sat down with individuals within the organization, said, what's going on at the moment? What's happening? The answers will all be there. And this is the most common mistake. People just don't ask their people mm. the questions. You know, people love, and I mean, I'm contradicting myself now because they love to put in a consultant <laughs> and say, what's happening? And all they're doing is the same thing, is asking people in the organization what's going on. And without doubt, you will be able to unearth really quickly what's made that change. It could be something really simple. But what tends to happen is people ask, but they don't listen. And then if they don't listen, they don't act. And then potentially they don't then respond. And that's disaster. Because we all know, if someone asks your opinion, you're hoping so, so that it will matter and they, they will don't act ask, on it. Why are they not asking? Is that ego driven? Is that, is that, you know, I'm in charge of my company and you're my minions type mindset? I mean, what, what, No, why? it's just not a people centric mindset. So a lot of the time you can get, you know, very bureaucratic leaders who've come, you know, and they have a particular kind of module within which they lead by and nothing will come around that. And a lot of that sort of soft skills that come with that aren't necessarily and haven't historically been really hammered home from a leadership point of view. And it's been the really the ones who are naturally or kind of innately doing it that have been successful. I mean, go back to Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been decades since that was written. And actually, culture was one of the key contributors to what mm -hmm. changed those businesses from good to great, right, over that 15-year window. And there was, you know, it wasn't being hammered home as a great business metric mm. when he wrote that book, but that's what he uncovered. And that's the difference. I mean, genuinely, I, I think it's a superpower. If you can get it right, the businesses that get it right, it's the difference between good and epic. You had an experience where you sold a business into another company and, and then essentially became part of that company for a while. And then you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, um, to, 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 for everyone listening and watching this right now, take us on the journey because that 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 was that a catalyst for you to really start thinking about this type of issue. Yes, but actually, I mean, it was part of it, but it goes way back. So, um, Camilla, my sister, and I set up our business in two thousand four. So we're going way back, and the fact that we were sisters, I think certainly contributed to the fact that we did build a values-based business. However, let's be honest, we didn't know that at the time. It was very intuitive because it kind of goes back to that story I was mentioning with the boss who didn't recognize me. We set up business a year later. So that kind of had triggered me going, why do we do this for other people? Like I put my heart and soul into a job. I got paid a pittance. I should just do it for myself. And then at least I would be in control of all of that. So that was kind of where it started. We then set up business together and obviously it incrementally grew. And for us, those values were very much, okay, we care. So I love that story because care is just so powerful. We care about people, we care because it was like a family business mm -hmm. at the beginning, certainly. But actually what triggered the change was in 2008. Were you here, 2008? Yeah, we'll yeah. so you'll remember that time. Yeah. Um, so as a business owner and a business leader, that was a very dramatic, worst experience professionally. And essentially in September, so layman's crashed. Mm -hmm. And then the phone started ringing. And we had just got to about 35 people um, that we were employing. We had just invested in a big new office, refitted a cool warehouse. You know, we were doing yoga classes and all that cool stuff. 
And um, the phone started to ring. So 2008, September, came into the office, first call of the day. You know, we're reading the news. Yeah, yeah. But it was like, hi, it's Nikhil, who we were doing all the mall um, communications. We need to cancel retainer today. Okay, fine. Phone rang again. Hi, need to cancel. Literally, the phone rang mm. and rang and rang for the whole day. And literally within 48 hours, we'd lost 50% of wow. our revenue, which, look, small scale, small business, for us, utterly catastrophic. Like it was just devastating because you're going, how do we, what do we do? How mm. do we go? You know, I didn't go to business school. There was no manual to pick mm. up and go, shit, what do we do now? Like we've got bills to pay, we've got salaries to pay, we've got commitments, this is serious. And that's really when we recognized that we were running a business with culture at the core and that all the values that we had intuitively been operating with and the behaviors that we encouraged and rewarded all came to light because we had to go out into our community and basically go, how are we gonna solve this? Mm -hmm. And we were transparent. We made a call to obviously work through it together and not let anyone go and do pay cut and, and built a plan as a collective. And we managed to get through it come out, we never had to let anyone go. And we came out bigger and stronger and ended up obviously um, over 100 people and then being highly valuable and acquired. So that process was a, where it became really clear that actually our culture was 100% what got us through that. And then that's when we turned and became very intentional about it. And we kind of co-created really specific values and you know that included the behaviors and the spirit of the business of what mattered. And we used them regularly. We had awards around them. We had weekly meetings. Everything was bracketed into what value does that work relate to? It was, you'd hear people chat all the time using the values in anecdotal conversations. And it was so powerful. That's what got the team together in the tough times. That's what ensured that our work quality was always the very best, which is why we were so recognized with so many awards. Mm. But that's what drove people. And it was incredibly powerful and hence, a long way around to the beginning of the story, why the acquisition? Because that's what our acquirers saw as so compelling. We had built a reputation in the market as a great place to work. We were in the Great Places to Work Index. Mm -hmm. We've been in the SME 100. We had hundreds of um, industry awards and we had great retention. And we were kind of capturing the talent because everyone was like, well, you got it. I want to you know, go work there. Work. Yeah. You know, because people were speaking highly of us. And look, not 100% perfect, but generally speaking, we had really good leavers. Everyone who left was leaving because we couldn't give them anymore as an independent. You know, either there was, they were being offered something bigger, greater. Um, so very different. Interesting. Well, what was interesting for me was when I met you and Camilla, um, we were, we were at some function somewhere and I'd never met you before. I'd heard about you, but I'd never met you. And you... You made, on my first exposure to you, you made my evening an absolute hoot. You were, a, you were a bundle of, I didn't want to go. I hate events like that. I remember you saying, yeah, actually. This is not where I want to be. Okay? And you get up at crazy o'clock in the morning. So yeah, yeah, you yeah. were like, this yeah. is very late. I remember that. I was like, God, he's such a hero. I don't do but, that. But, and, and, and honestly, I, I think it was Raj or Nemo. Somebody said, you know, you need to come, you need to come. And I was like, and it, it's not like it's far away. It was at the it's, Atlantis. It's it was, like, it was almost walking distance. <laughs> but even then I didn't want to go. But I remember that you, you and your sister just had a real positive vibe about you and a, and a really kind of warm energy. 
Thank and you. and I'm sure that, that that people working with you, of course, everyone has good days and bad days, but I'm sure that working with you, people people felt that, and uh, and felt that so. the environment must have been a fun place to be. Well, you know, care was core to that because we deeply cared about the work, we deeply cared about the people because we're professional services. We can't, we're nothing without people. Mm-hmm. So having, you know, a community of great talent is the only way you can get anything done. Mm. And actually. We're, we work for a third of our lives. Let's be in a place that we want to be in, where we feel like we can do great work, we can be motivated. You know, we worked really hard, and I think it's really important to highlight that. You know, there is this kind of myth around culture. It's all fluffy, you know, yeah. and everyone's doing yoga and um, <laughs> ping pong. And it's like, Bean actually, bags. yes. <laughs> And those things are great, but you know, everyone, if you talk to anyone, and we call them the Darbo alumni, because there's this incredible network of ex-employees mm-hmm. who all now are their own networks and support kind of group. And we all still reconnect at reunions and everyone, some of them are in business together. It's awesome. But um, yeah, it's really important to kind of, they worked hard. They will always say, I never worked harder than I did it when we worked mm-hmm. with you. Even though it was one of the most enjoyable experiences, it was hard, you know, we weren't sitting around filing our nails. Hey folks, quick interlude. Our new sponsor is Smartcast. Now they've got involved in our podcast for two reasons. Number one, because we are aligned, and number two, that they believe that you, our audience, can benefit from what they do. When we understand the problem of food security for the future, we'll notice that by 2080, there's not gonna be enough farm land to produce enough crops to go in our bellies. And if that's the case, we're gonna have problems with not only nutrition, malnutrition, but people and hunger. Food security is something that everyone should be able to rely on. And Smartcast is creating technologies to enable that to happen. Vertical farming strategies are one example of what they're doing. I really believe in their project. I believe in the business and I believe in the future, hence why I invested in them. And hopefully by going to check them out at smartcast.com, you'll learn more about them too. And if you ever want to get involved in investing, sustainable investing, that's not a bad way to go, is it? I think the first job I had when I was at school was in a factory making plant pots. Wow. And uh, it was, they had these big machines and you'd put these, these, these plastic pellets into this hopper and these machines would just clump out these plant pots, round brown plant pots, and I'd stack them up and put them in boxes. I did it for a month. It was the most depressing month of my life. I even remember it now, I was 15 years old and I just did it for a month. And I think that, you know, I had to work hard, but I think that when you're, when you're doing something you really enjoy, it, it, working hard isn't the same. Yes, you might work long hours, you might have to have deadlines and tight deadlines and you might need to execute and stuff, but when it's fun, yeah. okay, it's a different type of thing. You know, Lando Norris, the Formula One racing driver, was being interviewed about his career a little while ago. And they said, what, what's it like having a job like this? And he just said, a job? <laughs> I haven't got a job. He said, I don't have a job. I do, I love you know, he's, every he's, day. Like, I, I race cars, I haven't got a job. And you know, for, for all of the sponsors out there that are getting benefit from those guys that, that are having their brand on their shirt and yeah. their TV stuff, okay, for those businesses, it's really important that that, that that message is seen on the TV screens. But for him, it's just like, I go, I drive cars. And He's if you, like the you happiest know, man on yeah. the planet. <laughs> and you, and, and there, there are many people out there that, that are in that type of place. And so there's two aspects to this. It's number one, you know, in, in that whole workplace culture, it's, it's the environment, but it's also doing something you care about or, you, or, 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 or that matters to you. Yeah. A little bit like my podcast with some of the guests that I have. It matters. 
Massive. You know, it, 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 and regardless of, you know, as we spoke off camera a little bit earlier about it being kind of daunting and harrowing learning these stories, to me it matters. Mm. And, and I'll share those stories till the end of time because to me they matter. Um, when, it, when it comes to being in business just because you want to make money, there are some people out there that are motivated by money. They're motivated by what the money can give them. And so that drives them because their focus is on the work providing the end goal of the big house, the private jet, whatever it might be. Mm. But that's just such a tiny percentage of the population, really, really. And, and you can have both. You know, and that's why purpose, I know people talk about it all the time, but that is ultimately what it is. Mm -hmm. Why does the organization exist outside of making money? Because ultimately, everyone has to make money. We're not, you know, no one's running charitable causes necessarily. Yes, how can we have a charitable contribution in some way? But the essence of the business operating is it has a purpose to generate revenue, to pay, please stakeholders, to pay the bills. So what are you doing outside of that? What's the bigger reason for doing it? And for us, in our time as a communications agency, it was just to do the best quality creative work. That could be done and push the boundaries and do it in a way that you could do it with a great bunch of people with positive energy be recognized for the work an environment that cared whether you turned up or you didn't and yeah. and how you felt that day but that purpose was really clear for everyone and mm. any organization that doesn't have that because that's where the culture stems from why do you exist what are the values and the behaviors that really help you get there and how does that align with what mm. the business is trying to achieve Because the power of having a group of people come together behind one cause is phenomenal. I find, I find it quite interesting when you talk about this because I think about my daughters and, and they're very different kids. And everyone will say that Taylor, my eldest, is very driven, very focused, knows what she wants. You know, she knows the industry she wants to go into and you know, she wants to be successful in that space. Yet my youngest, who's, who's 19 and at uni, Katie, she couldn't give a shit. <laughs> she, she, all she cares about is being happy. Yeah. All right. And I look at it and I'm like, oh, I wish she was more driven and focused and clear on what she wanted to be and the direction she wanted to head in. But then I think to myself, what a blessing life would be if all you did every day was saw the joy in everything, yeah. you know, and you just wanted to be happy and everybody else around you to be happy, regardless of anything else. That to me, that to me almost comes close to, to the ultimate, doesn't it? It comes close to, you know, to utopia. Mm. Okay, so let's, let's go into this story because I want to I want to <laughs> ask you about what happened. And I want you to share it because I think it's important mm. for people to understand not only your journey, but how they can identify that within their own journey. Yeah. So happy days. Life was great. Um, we were coming up to 10 years um, in the business. So it was like 2014, which is a big moment of reflection. You know, kind of like we've achieved X amount. We were the largest in the region at the time. We've kind of got the great team, great client base, awarded, what now? And obviously growth and expansion was a big piece of that. So we were like, how are we going to achieve it? The two routes are we get investors or we go and we go to market and do a strategic move and go and see a potential acquirer or a business that we could partner with. So we chose to do go to market and see, because otherwise it's all a guess. We were like, it could go either way. Either we'll find the perfect agency partner and then we can grow and we can go into other regions, or we just carry on as we are and we self-fund, continue to self-fund. So we did go to market, it was a fascinating experience. Um, and essentially that just means you do a closed kind of submission to a bunch of potential you know, parties who might be interested in acquiring your business because there's some synergies there. And then they sign obviously various 
documentations, and then as you go through the process, you reveal more information. And the further you go along, then you get to kind of chemistry sessions. So it's like full dating process. It's quite bizarre. <laughs> and we ended up down to about four on the dating front. So we had, you know, we were flying to different countries to meet the leadership teams. And they were really compelling. I mean, you know, two girls from Dubai going, holy moly, like these are big names and they're interested in little old us. So there's a lot of those moments where you're just like, I'm so out of my depth here, my goodness. <laughs> And we had these meetings and it was quite intimidating, realistically. You know, like, this is a big decision. You've come from a very small independent business into these big conglomerates. Um, but we landed on one, you know, one of the four that we met. There was just so much good connectivity. And the irony of all of this is it was their culture. They were the largest, coincidentally, um, privately owned as well. So they were still founder owned, even though it was the son. So it was still a private organization. Their culture felt really aligned with ours, what mattered. And, the, and I have to say their courtship was excellent. They were very transparent. We were flown to strategy meetings. We met leadership teams. It was very positive. And so we're like, we found our match. And so everyone agreed and we were like, well, let's get married. Let's do the deed. Because honestly, it really is like a marriage. And the deals got signed and we were so optimistic. The big thing that changed is it was an acquisition and then it became a merger. And there is a big difference. Yeah. You know, an acquisition would have left us in control of the business. And over time, potentially, we would have done our earnout period over three years and they would have taken on or we would have carried on. And that was originally the plan. Born and bred here, mm -hmm. don't want to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, the merger became sort of an option because they already had offices here. So that added a real layer of complication because we were then getting some of their team to come into our team, moving some of our team into theirs. A CEO was going to come in over all the organizations. And then it was turning it into, again, a really big player for the region. And I think that's honestly where it started to change. And we were so far down the line, pretty much ink on paper by that stage, that you're kind of in the momentum and you go. But it was an incredible offer. You know, you're like, this is our opportunity to be in 130 countries across the world. You know, let the legacy live on. Because the thing people don't, and you may have experienced this, although I know you've got your businesses incredibly well run, um, you don't think at the time what's going to happen to it. You know, mm -hmm. at the time when you set up business, you're just like, all in. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you're like, what happens later on? Mm -hmm. And that's where it became, you know, will the legacy live on? How does it sustain? beyond us, because we're not going to do it forever. Um, and that was the great solution. So we had a happy marriage and everyone signed the deals and I couldn't believe our luck. It was like, wow, you know, we built it, we've sold it, we get to still run it. Our people are all getting opportunities. Yeah. Couldn't have been happier. And then I think that's when things started to unfold. And what became clear very quickly was their love and interest in our culture and what made us great suddenly became less of a focus, slightly less important. Mm -hmm. And the bureaucracy of large organizations, that sort of corporate culture mm -hmm. crept in. And my husband reminded me yesterday of a really interesting story, which was this awful balance between wow, success in one hand and absolute you know, punch in the guts in the other. And him and I were on a weekend in Vienna 
winter Christmas market shopping, stunning city. So like, this is such a treat. And at the time, we were doing a huge project for Lululemon. And mm-hmm. we're doing this big Dubai in yoga mats on Jumeirah Beach, you know, great media shots, big, big event. And I was sent that morning, we're walking through the streets and the phone pings and there's the picture. And I'm going, I am so proud of our team. Like how mega. I'm here, I've literally, they've done everything. That is a huge moment, a fully sustainable business that doesn't need me at all. And then in the next breath, an email drops. And it's been a correspondence between the kind of EMEA CEO and myself about some decisions within the business. And we ha- I had been saying, oh, we do it this way and this is what we would recommend and having built and run a business, you know, might have a, an idea or two. And the response was, yes, but you no longer own the business. This is, you don't have that decision-making capability anymore. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, shit. I was just like, and then you have this horrible feeling. You're like, God, how naive. I'm so stupid. Like, you know, of course. You're like, hang on a minute. No. Like, you at least should listen, talking about people hearing. You know, we don't need to be right, but we need to have an exchange. (laughs) Of you know, and we're partners. Well, that's how we had seen it. So there was a very quick shift, and that was very difficult. I have to be honest. And so, in that moment when that happened, you're walking through these markets. You're having a lovely time with your husband. <laughs> tell tell me what happens to the mood, and then what happens in the next hour. I don't mean in terms of walking through the streets. What happened in, in your head, head in the next I hour? I just I was so gutted, because I think when you're an, you know, a small-time entrepreneur. You know, we're a hundred people. It was not it, huge for us, but in the great scheme of the business world, you know, it's not the biggest thing that's ever been done. But you're just like, I don't know, how could you? you you're already questioning your own decision making. You're kind of intimidated by the big global behemoth that's been, you know, so privileged that they would look at us and consider us. Mm-hmm. And then you're going, but I kind of, you know, we've done all right. <laughs> you know, you. We've got an incredible track record. You didn't buy us because we were shit. Exactly. (laughs) Where is this suddenly all changed? And where is it that one opinion is more important than another because it maybe has, you know, a business school degree behind it? Or, Uh. um, you know, it just, and look, honestly, naive. I set the business up at 26. I've never worked in a large corporate organization. I am absolutely the worst at politics. Like, you and me both. I, I don't do politics. I don't even know. I mean, it literally paralyzes me. I don't know what how it works, which is odd because I mean, socially I can cope, but in that dynamic, it's, I think when you're so unfamiliar with it, and it taught me two really valuable lessons. You can never underestimate how much time it takes to bring people together. You know, the months and months of time that went into doing a contract. And the minute that went into, now it's announced, let's go, it's just totally off base. What, what, in that moment though, did, upon reflection, did you, did you regret that you'd chosen that company or did you regret that you didn't understand enough, mm. maybe as much as you should, or did you regret that maybe you weren't as smart as you should have been around that decision-making process? What, 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 were, you, what were you feeling there? The thing that comes back over and over, I'm trying not to do regrets. Like I'm, try, I'm an optimistic person. So I'm always like, we learn, we move on. I think 
hindsight is just the most <laughs> powerful thing. And at the time, the kind of, uh, or certainly my lack of confidence, probably just felt like they were the best people to do it and that they would do a better job than we would to continue do, running it. And on reflection, and I was so tired, you know, like really burnt out, to be honest. It had been a, over a decade. I'd had three kids do that. I had worked seven days, 20 hour days. I'd been beasted. <laughs> I'd beasted myself. <laughs> so, you know, and you're kind of like, God, I'm so over carrying everyone's problems. Yeah. So tired. So done with making decisions. Like it would be so nice to not have to do that. And of course, no regrets. Look, you make the best decisions you can. I really mm. believe that at the time. And we did. We agonized over it. But the reality is what I know now is we had more options. And I don't think we realized that. And actually, our team was so incredible. The structure was so incredible that we, I could have taken six months off, rebalanced, recharged, like reconfigured, which is really what I needed, mm -hmm. and come back and, and we could have carried on. But we live and learn. And to be honest, it's why I'm here today, right? Hoping to change the world and bring great workplace cultures to other people because those experiences just brought home that you can't demand. You know, culture's not a mandate. You can't no, just go right no. today. <laughs> it's a movement. It's real. It's it's human and it's and it's people-centric and it has to be defined. It has to be invested in. You know, my dream, chief culture officer sitting in the leadership team. It's that important. And how far away from that do you think we are? If I'm too realistic about it, I wouldn't do what I do and get up every day because we're probably a way off. But chief diversity officer, mm -hmm. that wasn't a job. No. Five years ago. Chief so, happiness officer as well, yeah. So I really, you know, as I said, I'm an optimist and I think if you're an entrepreneur, you need to be because, you know, you have so much stacked against you so often. Um, what's really important is everyone's talking about it. And that to me is brilliant. What I think the challenge is, people don't know what to do. So at the moment, there's just a lot of chat. You know, if you search it or you pick up a business magazine or any kind of, everyone's talking about workplace culture balance. But actually, really, people are lacking on what do I do to address it? How do I act? Because I just sit here and read about it and there's, talk about the, it. Is there, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of talk about this with regards, I mean, Jordan Peterson talks about it a lot, about the right people should be in the job. It shouldn't be about man or woman or color of skin or, yeah. or you know, ethnicity or religion. It should be about the right person for the job. Um, and South Africa went through a period of time of their, uh, of their BLM movement and where they wanted to try and bring more black people into the workplace where whites had traditionally had those roles. And so if one black person and one white person were applying for the same job, the black person would typically get it. And the white people in South Africa were really unhappy about that. They had very short term memories because they needed to look back over the last 30 years and see the impact of what had happened there. Mm. So I, I but it's a really that's a really difficult thing to balance. Uh, when you when you think about culture, you have to take diversity into the equation, yeah. but you have to also run a business. And so if the business is 100 women that are all from the same part of the country and all have the same interests, and that's in the best interest of the business to be successful, then that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Because there's no, as you say, no mandate, because there's no 
you know, all we have is experiments as answers from what I see. Companies that have gone out there and, 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 and have tried something and it's worked and they've been able to build on the back of that working, but it's, it's not a formula. It's, it's the formula for that business within that industry at, at that time. So where does a company coming to you today, sitting down and say, we get it, we, we did, did. But like just kind of like fix it, you know? Yeah. Well, the good thing is there, the, there are frameworks and there are processes and actually, like anything, it's about having the right plan in place. So totally it's all possible. The other thing is it's not just about fixing. I think it's really important. Like most of the clients we work with have really good cultures, mm -hmm. but they want to be Better. great and they want it to be their superpower. You know, yes, we work and kind of you've got a new leadership team in or a, or, a, or a company's been through a terrible time, which we had with a recent client and they'd had a legacy of kind of, you know, command and control, master slave mentality, a lot of misgivings, new CEOs come in, you know, there's a refresh in the business. That's a great, that we would call a culture transformation. But a lot of the time, it's what can we do more? How do we be more effective? How can we, you know, double down on what we're really good at and what's the strategy to do that? And the place to start? Measurement. Like, stand by it 100% because otherwise it's guesswork. It's like, you know, if you're going to start a training program for your keep fit, you know, and culture is the health of your business. You know, I just, I've started a box fit program and I just did my body mass this morning. <laughs> I've never done one of those before. Oh, well, you said on that machine, yeah. It and it spat out all these results. And I was like, you see, I love this measurement. I've got something tangible to now reference. Yeah. And that's what's so important with culture. And we have a lot of different ways you can do that. There are different assessment modules and processes. As little as $10,000, you know, up to a million dollars, depending on what you're doing and, and who it is. But when you know where you're at, that's how you then can build your strategy and actually have a plan of how to make change mm -hmm. or to improve or develop or to you know to do more of because if you don't know what you're dealing with and in our experience I would say 75% of the time the leadership's opinion of the business and the reality two very different things, very different things. when we talk about the, the health of people we have physical health which was, was standard for forever yeah. You know, and so health insurance was provided for people and companies that cared about their staff, they would buy good health insurance and companies that just needed to tick a box would buy the cheap health insurance. And you've probably seen that. But kind of mental health has become, and I wouldn't say it's a buzzword now because it's been around for some time over the last few years. But there's so much that's wrapped up within mental health that it's, I've seen it almost being used as a lever. Mm rather than really solving problems and trying to help. Now, so one of the businesses we own is a corporate wellness business. We've noticed lots of companies are like, we want to make sure our staff are well. Uh, you know, we want to make sure, physically, obviously, but we want to make sure that they're in the right place. You know, they face challenges and we want to, we want to make sure that they peak performance, essentially, within their organisation. And so they're investing more in learning about it. But it can be abused, can't it? Well, I was going to say, that sort of, an outcome, what's the symptom? And that's the difference. Normally, if you're seeing in an organization that mental health is generally, or mental well-being is compromised in more than unique, because you know, more, some suffer more than others, it's very personal, mm -hmm. then there's probably a symptom within the business. And that's when it's like, what's happening in the organization that's creating a much bigger need for it? Some of it's societal, some of it's environmental mm -hmm. um, and it is important having if you work somewhere with a great culture the benefit is your mental health will probably be 
-hmm. improved mm -hmm. because depending what the reasons for you to be struggling, which could be in your personal or your professional, and there is an overlap, of course, but it's, it's a real time for listening. And like you said, um, you gave the example earlier, if you care, if a, a, an employee feels psychologically safe, that they can come in and have, be having a bad day, and that's okay, you know, you get a pass. Give them a duvet day. You know, we've kind of, this world of nine to five and everyone has to pitch up at the same time every day and be in a great place and be able to work perfectly from 9 a.m., go. It's just long gone, isn't it? It's, we all perform differently. We all perform better in certain times. And some of us are gonna struggle more than others. And I think that's the real excitement now. I mean, I've worked with people who really struggled with mental health issues. And that was a time where we didn't talk about it. And I always felt so privileged that they felt they could share and, yeah. and tell me. And you know, that's a huge responsibility that comes with that knowledge as well. And I was like, these are some of the most gifted people I've ever worked with. And I was too happy, only too happy to be flexible. And they could say, I'm really struggling today. Don't worry, you know, come back to me and you're all good. Because I knew that the time they were there, they were giving 150%. Mm. And that's really, if you just, we've all got to be a bit more open-minded. Yeah. This rigidity to things should be, it's one way doesn't suit everyone and never will. And if you want to get the best, you know, look, we're people. People performance drives business performance. Like if everyone just yeah. kept remembering that the people are at the core of that, it's not, unless you're in, obviously, working in a factory and machines are doing everything, I get it, different. Yeah. But when you're primarily a people-oriented organization, if you're not really thinking about the people, you're never gonna get the performance that you want. When you go back to your journey and you, you, you remember your experience, how important was that in shaping what you do now? Do you think that was like, like so critical? And do, do you think it makes you really sensitive to, to people's feelings and experiences, maybe more so than before you had that merger take place? Yeah. It's a lot of lot <laughs> a lot of questions in one. It really does because I'm very sensitive actually to people generally, which has been an advantage to the my previous life because that sensitivity in terms of client work and understanding people and recruiting is helpful because I can really read mm -hmm. quickly what's happening. So it makes me hypersensitive to that. But what my own personal transformation was a huge turning point because I had set up business so young with no experience. I mean, experience, but no, I'd never had a great manager ever. I'd never had an appraisal. I'd never had, and I worked with my sister, <laughs> trying to ask her to give me an appraisal and vice versa it was never really gonna work. So, you know, the way I was leading was so based on instinct and kind of what I'd seen and what I thought was right. And it was only when I had some executive coaching before we did the acquisition. So it was probably about seven years in, that was life-changing for me because I had finally had this opportunity to learn about myself and have a level of self-awareness that I had been oblivious to. And so I was a classic entrepreneur. I mean, like, do everything myself, control freak, you know, everyone's really empowered. Oh, really, I just do everything. <laughs> you know, I check everything, all of that stuff. And look, it's, it wasn't disaster. But I mean, I had so much to learn and could do so much better. And through that process, I suddenly, it was so liberating. I was like, let's try it. You know, it, it really changed me so much. And my team at the time were like, who even are you? Because they were like, 
let's do this. And I'd be like, oh, why don't we do it different? What do you think? And my favorite, apparently the phrase I always said, which someone reminded me the other day, they were like, oh, I loved it when you went, let's get radical. <laughs> what have we not thought of? And a lot of that came to how people were then treated. It was like, let's try. Let's do, we were doing flexi work a decade ago, mm. you know? Do it as, you know, look, it wasn't perfect, but we were trialing it. We were hiring part-timers, even though it was more expensive from a visa. Because we were like, want great people for half the time. That's great. Mm. So it really kind of gave you that opportunity to go, if you trust in the people and your yeah. leadership capability allows you to be clear and concise but open-minded, so many amazing things can happen. Give me an example of the kind of companies that you've worked with. You don't have to give me any, any company names, but the yeah. kind of companies that you've worked with, um, an example of where they were really getting it wrong and what you did help to solve a problem. Okay. Um, a good example, because I think it applies to so many companies, is an international company, North American media company. <laughs> Without giving it away. Yeah, I'm like, you can North take American the media company from New York with a female this, CEO. Uh, yes. <laughs> this many employees and they do this. Um, no, that's all you're getting. I'm not giving you any more. Um, well, actually, you might get it. Um, and I'm sure they won't mind. Um, they set up a branch in the Middle East and their first one in an Arabic-speaking location. And what made it even more unique is it was Arabic language. So now you definitely know who it is. <laughs> and they were doing a great thing. I mean, ultimately, their leadership team locally was just like, reached out. I was like, we, we just need to work on the culture and bring everyone together and be clear about why we're all here. Can you come in and help? And they already, they're a big global organization. So people would think, oh, well, if they're an international, what work would you do with them? It's like, well, actually what works in North America, very mm -hmm. rarely is going to be appropriate to work in the Middle East with an Arabic language team. So they have a very clearly defined culture as a business and they have very clear values. In fact, really incredible ones, like pin up. I mean, I use them as an example for clients to go, look, if you want to build a great culture manifesto and values playbook, this is a great example. But what it wasn't was relevant locally. So it's like we localize content. You know, if Pepsi's doing something in the US and they want to run it here, you reimagine it and you localize it to make it relevant and pertinent mm -hmm. and engaging to your audience here. Course, yeah. So we then worked with the team locally, did our measurement, because I said, most important thing. So we kind of talked to all of them, ran the assessment to see where they were at and what was really working and, and what needed more work. And then redefined their kind of values and kind of localized, Arabized them for the here and now. And that just allowed them all to go, okay, now I belong. Because at the time, that was the biggest challenge. They were like, I'm so proud to be part of this organization. You know, I've wanted to work here. This is like the coolest place ever. But it's all a bit abstract because one of their values, for example, was like show up as you, like the true you, about authentic self. And that's really difficult in a place where actually to be your true authentic self could land you in jail. Mm. So how do you truly live that value? How do you engage with that as a person when the two don't align? So we then took that and went, what does that mean in this context? What does this mean for you guys? So it can be really powerful to make it relevant, personal, and then they cared about it. They're invested in it because they've been part of creating it. How many, how many companies are there that do what you do in this part of the world? Are there lots or are there few and far no. between? Well, I mean, we're the, 
we're calling ourselves the first Middle East so, workplace culture culture. But this is really important. So, people do it. Look, management okay. consultancies do have the capability. Okay. And I think that's the point. A lot of people do it. Creative agencies still do purpose, bit of culture and values, they would say. Um, management consultancies do kind of, you know, human capital piece, mm -hmm. the kind of assessment. But all of them also do loads of other things. This is all we do. Like this is because this is what I care about more than anything and, and the people I work with is like how do we make great cultures for everyone because it shouldn't be a privilege like I just hate that that people are like you're so lucky mm. you work somewhere that's so great you're so lucky no it's a human right we should all be our best because businesses will thrive if mm. each of us showed up every day and we're giving a hundred percent in the right direction. Imagine the power that could have. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. See, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Great, <laughs> you love where it? you love work. It. Yeah, we love it. <laughs> Spence Lodge will be in great places to work in next, next year. Number one. <laughs> Your story to me is something that, that, that is not an unusual story, okay, to go through that type of experience. I've, I've heard it before. The fact that you've become as you say, evangelical about it is, is really important to me though, because I went on a journey of belonging and then not belonging. And when I didn't belong, it became, it, it became depressing. And then it became something that I became suicidal about. Hmm. And when you, when you go through that type of experience, and I don't wish that on anybody, when you go through that type of experience and you start to realize how important their aspects are to your to your work life and play um that if you if you get it wrong it, it can cause quite a lot of a problem in your life and that's where i was and i just don't want anyone to ever be there just before we finish we've had a big change in the rules here in the uae recently so beginning of the year the charger went to four days you dubai went to four and a half days something that I've disliked for many years where a job role, depending on nationality, is paid a different salary, which is, I just don't think is right. But that's all being addressed in the new labor laws mm. that have just been introduced, which I think are just fantastic. Amazing, by um, the way. It's a, it's a real step in the right direction. Amazing. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I think it's a step in the right direction too late uh, or, or too, uh, later than it should have been. But also I think it, that's come from outside pressure to to kind of like equalize stuff mm. um labor law relating to you know maternity there was something on love in dubai recently about people you know can complain if they don't get their salaries on time i mean what the heck is that all about you know people not being paid and the comments where i've not been paid for two months i'm still waiting for my money it's heartbreaking isn't it it, it really is because people go to work and they do a job and they've got families to feed and all the other wonderful stuff that goes on it's a basic transaction i yeah. do something for you do like yeah, how absolutely. can you not Deliver on that. Absolutely. Okay. It's exactly what I say to people that the, the, the work you You get a salary. Okay. I will never, my, my dad taught me when I was young, never ever pay anyone late. Mm. He said, whatever you do, he said, even if that means you don't eat, don't pay people late. It's, it's, it's critical. Love that. And so that, that's what I did. And now we see these new laws come in and we see these changes take place. Do you think a four day work week is a good idea? Do you think a four and a half day work week is a good idea? What about for us here in a country with, you know, Muslim prayers on a Friday, the big, you know, the brig prayers on a Friday, the, the, the chaos that that's caused. 
I, I was here when I was a kid in the Middle East when Thursday and Friday was the weekend. Oh my God, so was I. Okay. And they were still doing a split shift. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, my dad would come, come home. home for We'd lunch. come home for lunch and, and then go back at four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So dad, dad would go early in the morning, come home yeah. for lunch. He'd go back to work at four till eight or something. Yeah. Yeah, and then he'd come back. Crazy. And so we've seen, we've seen all these changes take mm. place. Is it going to work, do you think? And, and, and are they making any mistakes or is it really everything in the right direction? I think firstly, what we've shown, and I, that's blown me away, is how quickly we're so adaptable now. You know, we saw that in the pandemic when everyone suddenly had to go home and work and how quickly people were just back on it. And the same with the new working week. It seems to have, you know, enforced, yes, very, very short notice. I think we all agree that was probably <laughs> a little harsh because, you know, major organizations, that's a lot to think about. I mean, a great friend of mine is a... CEO of a family conglomerate here, thousands of employees across multiple lines of business, trying to figure out how you're going to make that work with three weeks notice. I mean, cruel. But it's working, you know, sometimes pressure. They say if you give yourself six months or a week, right, you're Mm -hmm. doing the same. So we've proved that. Um, There's great examples of it really working. Iceland did an amazing program between 2015 and 2019 of a four-day week. Mm -hmm. Same pay same productivity in fact sometimes increased productivity mm-hmm. really good example um and uk is about to do it mm-hmm. so that's coming i think that will be great lesson to be learned the challenge here we have is it's not universal and i i think that's where we're going to find challenges as we move forward because the immediate people who benefit are public sector because there is going to be a clear structure around that actually education because mm-hmm. it's a hard stop which honestly they deserve. I, I have spent the last two years going, I cannot imagine what it must be like oh. to be in education. They have had to learn to be a thousand different jobs and the stress, honestly. But so they are benefiting off the back of that. Um, but then you've got, you know, a whole raft of employees who really will not have the types of jobs that are able to facilitate that. For example, a factory worker. Mm-hmm. How do they get to benefit from flexibility? Mm-hmm. That's really difficult. So I don't think anyone has the answer yet, but I, I imagine that's going to be a real challenge. In, in our business, one of the things we asked, because it's four and a half days here, we said to the staff, what do you want to do about it? Mm, and right, they, and, you're and, asking. And they said, well, can we work an hour extra every day? And then we can leave at lunchtime Friday. Now, that would be great for us. Perfect. Okay, and, and do it that way. What well, a great example, you ask. You get told. Danielle asked. I didn't ask. But, it's not, pretty, but that's but, exactly yeah. was my point earlier. Amazing. You, you solve the issue. Everyone's bought in. Everyone's committed to it. Your success will be astounding because you're all bought in and committed. Yeah, and everyone's... It is difficult. Look, I would dream, you know, I, a four-day week would be fantastic. I think most of it's discipline. I worked for a brief period in a, back in a corporate And the reason I went back is they, you know, very kindly created the kind of dream job. It was four day week, three months off so I could spend time with my kids. And... It's not a job. Uh, I know. You're hanging out with Lando Norris. I was about to say about the F1 driver. Four day week, three months holiday. It was amazing. Don't get any ideas. Um, To be fair, it, it started like as the pandemic began. So it kind of never really worked in the way it was meant to. But that was my point. I think, you know, Discipline. I, uh, I'm working on my discipline. Four days with equal productivity, doing it in four days, that requires capabilities that not everybody has. And that would be a definite area that people need to invest in. How do you? Because 
I don't know many people who, like we just said earlier, if you're given X amount of time, you'll do the work. If you're given what? managers yeah. are going to be under more pressure, and most managers aren't capable. Mm -hmm. It's it's an issue across the board that most middle managers need a lot more capability training. Yeah. You need to be clear about your expectations. You need to be clear about boundaries, which mm -hmm. relates to hybrid working as well. There's a lot more pressure on managers to make. No, it's not only that, it's the, uh, the, the outbound pressure that's been growing every year from social media, yeah. because people are spending more and more time there. So if they've got to be more efficient, you know, they've got to be away from that, you know, that exactly. time consumption of nonsense. Okay, so that they're spending more time being efficient at what they do. But you're right, I hadn't thought as much detail about that. The it's leaders hard. of businesses, you know, you, you know, I've now got to get out of you in four days what I get out in five days. Yeah, because we don't suddenly have more money to pay more people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, so, and then I think we're going to have this risk about burnout, which is a real issue at the moment, generally, that you're now doing, you know, most people would rather work five. If you then say to me, I've got, I'm struggling already, now I've got to do that in four. That's not a privilege, mm -hmm. that's a burden. Mm -hmm. And that's when it's not going to work. Mm. So I think we can only wait and see and hope for the best, but expect that there'll be teething problems. A place that your company are front and center <laughs> of being able to make Catherine. Uh, absolutely, anytime. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to join us today on the show. It's been a real, real honor chatting to you. And Thank you're just you. that bundle of happiness and joy. And I love your optimism. <laughs> So. Thank you so much, Spencer. It's been, as you said, much more enjoyable than I expected. <laughs> I really liked it. And thank you to you. It's been fab. Thanks. Thank you. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon. So understanding workplace culture is something that I think a lot of people in business don't take seriously. I know many businesses across this part of the world that I have advised and helped where they really don't focus on the culture of the people. When you think about your businesses, when you think about the company you work for even, is culture at the core? Do they care about you? Do they care about the journey you're on? Do you think that what the company does matters? Do you have purpose around your job? And if you do, then you're probably in the right place. Hopefully you've enjoyed this episode as much as I did spending it chatting with Lucy, who's got some first-hand experience about what it's like, as you can see, to not enjoy that type of journey and what she's done about making a difference.